Hello, dear listener. My name is Santiago Quintana, and this is the Golden Quince. In today's episode, we're starting with the birth of a gossipy, judgmental periodical, detour to the lands of gender and identity, and end up in 1961 England on St George's Day, as the empire crumbles and the tension created by immigration echoes. The early 1710s. I've been agonizing over what topic to talk about in this our first episode of the Golden Quince. I have a gigantic list, and as a Libra rising myself, decision making is not my forte. I eventually decided I would start with the research topic that started this whole obsession. In college, I mostly bounced around between English literature, philosophy, and gender studies classes. One semester in particular, I was reading queer theory, 18th-century philosophy, and the origins of the novel, and this planted a seed that would continue to grow for many years to come. As a queer man myself, masculinity is something I think about a lot, specifically the many ways in which it is enforced and the many more in which it is resisted. It was that year that I began researching in earnest for the first time a topic that has followed me to this day: genteel masculinity, specifically in British writings. I am fascinated by the mix of class and gender norms that begat the figure of the gentleman in the early 18th century, and I have traced the many incarnations it has taken from then till now. Of course, nothing has only one beginning, but rather a series of events that build on each other and transform into the figures that we have today. But one event that has always stood out to me as crucial in this process is where I want to start. The year is 1711. It's March. You'd be wearing a knee-length suit jacket over a pair of breeches. With a full skirt and wide cuffs, you're headed to St. James Coffee House, because you're a man of fashion and you know the right time and place to be seen at the tea, chocolate, and coffee houses around London. It is March first. As you walk into the coffee house, you feel the buzz of conversation. Some other fashionable man or other hands you a printed pamphlet, The Spectator, issue one. One Mr. Spectator, who is to write about the goings-on of the town, to instruct and to critique, writes: "I live in the world rather as a spectator of mankind than as one of the species. By which means I have made myself a speculative statesman, soldier, merchant, and artisan, without ever meddling with any practical part in life." I am very well versed in the theory of an husband or a father, and can discern the errors in the economy, business, and the diversion of others better than those who are engaged in them. As standers by discover blots which are apt to escape those who are in the game. Disconcerting. Mr. Spectator, secretly looking into the clubs and coffee houses and chocolate houses and fashionable parlors. Why should this man be trusted to comment on society? To this effect, he writes: "I had not been long at the university before I distinguished myself by a most profound silence. For during the space of eight years, 
excepting the public exercises of the college, I scarce uttered the quantity of an hundred words, and indeed do not remember that I ever spoke three sentences together in my whole life. I have been taken for a merchant upon the exchange for above these ten years, and sometimes pass for a Jew in the assembly of stock jobbers at Jonathan's. In short, wherever I see a cluster of people, I always mix with them, though I never open my lips but in my own club. This man, Mr. Spectator, is the epitome of the cultural idea of masculine gentility that had been brewing in England until then. One who judges, analyzes, and instructs, but is above judgment or analysis or instruction. The gentleman moves through the world untouched. He is pure refinement. He is internally consistent, a repository of knowledge, sensitive but not to the point of affectation, of course, strict and ethical but not to the point of stubbornness, and certainly above any political affiliation. The perfect man. This was Mr. Spectator. This was the character that Joseph Addison and Richard Steele developed in the 1710s for their daily periodical. In this periodical, they would publish essays on every aspect of society you can think of. The proper way to watch theater, the horrid popularity of crinolines, navigating luxury and avarice, etc. The key is that Mr. Spectator has to remain a silent observer unencumbered by any practical part of life to remain a trustworthy source of information, to retain his identity as a gentleman. Because he is no one, he can be anyone, and is completely at ease among merchants and Jews and university professors. His silence maintains his status. His silence shields him from criticism. Let's leave St. James Coffee House and think about this for a minute. Society imposes so many constraints and demands on us that we are constantly navigating. They are almost always contradictory, even if it's not immediately evident. I should spend more time with my family, but also I should be emotionally and economically independent and self-sufficient. I should work harder so I can get that promotion and that raise, but also self-care and work-life balance are important. Everyone navigates these choices differently. Some people think of a personality or personal brand that they have internalized and judge these demands based on that. Others have religion or spirituality, or maybe something like their Myers-Briggs or the Enneagram or astrology. Some rely on coaches and therapists, but we all ultimately make decisions constantly regarding the contradictory demands placed on us by society. Let's talk about gender. Gender is an incredibly complicated social mechanism, but I want to talk about one aspect in particular. Gender norms are characterized by being unachievable. That is why they work. That is why it's so pervasive. It's even addictive at a subconscious level. 
like that video game you're just one level away from beating, but also seems to always have a bonus boss or a character to unlock or some easter egg to find. I don't know the first thing about video games. This was a weak attempt at being relatable. I personally haven't played anything past the GameCube. But what I mean is that is something that keeps demanding more of you, and that is why we keep playing this game. The idea of agency when it comes to gender is also quite complicated. It is always mixed up and never just one thing. Like most things in society. If anything is just one thing, then there's more to be uncovered. Ask almost any queer about gender and they'll probably say it's an oppressive system that is imposed upon us from birth. And that is true, absolutely. But also, there's a queer project of creating and transforming gender by questioning the boundaries and limitations. That's also gender, right? So do we make gender or does gender make us? Both is the answer. If there's only two options, I always ask myself, what does this binary want from me? And second, there's always a third option, no matter what anyone says. So we make gender, but there's limits and rules. And gender makes us, but not without resistance. There's degrees and shades to this process. And the ways that we interact with the rules and the ways that we impose resistance vary from person to person and from time to time. The reality is that identity isn't a unilateral process in either direction. I could subjectively identify a certain way, but unless it is immediately socially legible, that is, if society as a whole has that particular label of identification in currency, which happens very slowly, I will not be immediately identified as such. Because as much as individualism wants to convince us that we're free agents making our own decisions out of our unconstrained free will, that ignores a fundamental part of our world. Other people. Now at the same time, anyone who just passively accepts and unquestioningly assumes the gender presentation that society demands of them at any given time becomes like a robot or an automaton completely devoid of any time for free will. I love to say that I don't care what people think about me or my gender expression. And to a certain extent that's true, but again, this is not a binary answer. This is not a yes or no. There's different days and different moods and different degrees. And we are social animals, so the way we are read by society is deeply important for the creation of our identity. Our identity lives in that middle place between what I write onto the world and what the world reads from me, which is a constantly changing surface. Along that spectrum of completely subjective to completely socially dictated, we find that identity arises from the friction between what I put out into the world and how the world is continuously reading me. Which is why identity is so contextual. Depending on who surrounds you, different aspects and parts of you are being read and in different ways. For example, one of the freedoms afforded by queer spaces is that it's 
much less likely that someone will unilaterally assume your gender from your appearance. Because that has been a collective project of the queer community for a few decades now. So someone who maybe usually experiences a lot of friction between the gender that they are subjectively constructing and creating and what the world is reading onto them might feel more at ease or relax and even widen their understanding of their own gender when they surround themselves by people who allow them this space. On the other hand, for example, in a gay male group, someone might consider themselves very masculine and be regarded as such by his gay men community, but would really be thought of as feminine or failing in a variety of types of masculinity, even if he is, quote, straight passing, it would be because of his associations with gay men or his taste in clothes or movies or even the way he's overperforming masculinity. Again, it is all contextual. Where you are changes how you're read. Identity is far from fixed. And that doesn't just mean that one day you might connect more with things that society considers feminine and others not. It's unstable in society as well and changes depending on who's around you, the political climate, your age, race, class, ability, ethnicity, etc. And so much of it is based on the choices you make when navigating the contradictory demands that society places upon us. These choices are that practical part of life. These choices mark us and define us as being part of a certain group with certain associations and certain tastes and beliefs. And to bring it back to the 18th century, these are the choices that Mr. Spectator avoids to retain his authority. By not putting anything forward, not writing anything onto himself, he remains a blank page, able to infiltrate all levels of society. This theory of identity being a product of the interaction between the subjective self-making and external interpretation was formulated by a brilliant sociologist whose name I couldn't remember for the longest time. His name is Peter L. Berger. I read his work about eight years ago and was so struck by it that it quickly became the foundation of how I think about identity in general. Instead of thinking of identity as something essential prior to any involvement in the material world, much like a soul, I think of identity as the product of a bunch of forces, social, psychological, political, historical, etc. The effect of this for me is very freeing. Because that means that if you adjust the ingredients, you can change the product. Instead of thinking of your identity as this process of trying to discover a true self, capital letters, it becomes more like creating a potion with certain ingredients. Some of them you have control over and some of them you don't. And the amount that you have control over and your knowledge of how to use them changes through your life. And the ones you do have control of can be used strategically to influence the identity that is produced, accommodating to your emotional, psychological landscape, which is also changing. For my philosophy nerds out there, yes, this is a decidedly dialectic materialist view. 
And it is one that I've taken to heart and used in thinking about my own identity, which has been a, truly a wild journey. It has brought me a lot of joy and helped me approach my identity from a place of playfulness and joy instead of some anxious, solipsistic, like navel-gazy, super psychological exploration, chasing some unreachable true self inside me somewhere that I may or may not ever get right. Instead, adjusting the amount and the quality and the type of the ingredients that you put in this big soup that is identity, it's like fine-tuning your happiness in the world, little by little, and observing the results and how they make you feel. And knowing that there's a ton of ingredients that we don't have control over definitely helped me temper my expectations of the effects that my small adjustments in my own ingredients would have in the world at large. And honestly, a lot of this thinking about my own gender identity and identity in general was catalyzed by my research into 18th century masculinity and how it's shifted and how it was enforced. So what does Mr. Spectator and the inner workings of gender and identity have to do with each other? Well, Addison and Steele through Mr. Spectator are putting on paper, whether they know it or not, ideas that would shape masculinity and class for centuries to come. Masculinity tied to gentility, that is, a higher socioeconomic class, created the gentleman. The figure of the gentleman is a complicated one, especially in this period. In the early 18th century, we are coming out of an era where class is tied to birth and blood, but also the possibility of becoming genteel through breeding and social mobility is very real and tangible, and happened all the time. Defoe touches on this in The Complete English Gentleman, which is a manual on how to educate men to become gentlemen. He mentions birth as a marker of gentility, but then goes on to say that really, it is breeding that is the final say. Many boys born to genteel households end up being anything but, and many merchants with the proper breeding and education can become even more genteel than those born into established families. And the criteria for gentility that everyone is using at this point to decide whether someone is a gentleman or not is Mr. Spectators, one who is in the world but is unmoved by it, an unmoved mover, much like a creator god. The unjudged judge. The gentleman is marked not by what he does, but by what he doesn't do. To give a more concrete example, let's go to the 19th century. Charles Dickens continuously represents two groups of people explicitly and cartoonishly in his novels. He has the profligate aristocrats, penniless, landed nobles with twisted morals, and on the other side, the charmingly uneducated and destitute workers of the Industrial Revolution. Those two extremes only serve to quietly normalize the gentleman as the correct and natural way of being, the one who is neither one, aligned with true nature and somehow better than both of those other groups. They are not described directly, but in contrast to the villains and the jesters, 
poor people are funny or mean, and rich aristocrats are abusive libertines. The gentleman is not rough and vulgar, like the lower classes, but also not overly affected like the fashionable aristocrats, who are, more often than not, very queer-coded. He's not greedy, but also not a squanderer, not dressed in rags, but also not dressed in velvet and lace in the latest fashions of Paris. Rational, but also empathetic. And you don't even have to go as far as Dickens to see this. Jane Austen, and even Fanny Burney in the 1770s, already is using the quiet gentleman defined by his silence, making no strong show of preference for truly anything other than what is required of him by duty. That is the gentleman. That is desirable. So, what's all this to us in the 21st century other than a fun historical tidbit? I think anyone who has lived in this funny world of ours knows that these concepts still run deep in most of our societies. Many men internalize the demands of a masculinity very similar to Mr. Spectator's. Don't say too much. Don't express yourself. Don't be so extra. Don't be too funny. But also don't be dull and boring. Be sexy and take care of your body to look good. But also, don't look too good. Don't know too much about fashion. Or people will think you're vain. And that's gay. Be sensitive and empathetic but also strong and immovable, a rock for the family, a shoulder to cry on. But also, liberated men know to be sensitive and open about their emotions and cry even, but they should do it the right way. And also look hot while they do it and have the right body and say the right thing, or maybe they won't be attractive anymore. The gentleman is supposed to be untouched by the world. And this daily periodical that started in March 1st in 1711, it's one of the first places where we can start seeing that taking shape on the page in a historical record. This is not to say that it didn't exist beforehand, of course. We have the Italian concept of sprezzatura, which is like working really, really hard to look like you didn't do anything to yourself. This idea is presented in Castiglione's Book of the Courtier, but that feels different to me because that is about behavior at court with the monarch, among other nobles. This pamphlet was distributed daily in coffee houses and tea houses and chocolate houses in London. It was read by artists, writers, painters, actors, playwrights, and of course, parents. These ideas had a much wider circulation and thus affected the art and the education for centuries to come, which is what made it so ingrained in our culture to this day. I will definitely be talking more about Mr. Spectator. After all, it was published daily for a few decades, so there's a lot of material. But today, I want to go in a different direction. I want to take that even further. This rhetoric, of course, affects us in a very personal level, that of identity and how we move in the world. And it is important to know its origins, of course, but it also has shaped the way we talked about nations. Now, let's go to 1961, in England. It's St. George's Day. The British Empire is collapsing. Conservative Member of Parliament Enoch Powell is speaking on this day. 
about the crumbling British Empire. This is an excerpt of his speech. There was this steep, this providential difference between our empire and those others, that the nationhood of the mother country remained unaltered through it all. Almost unconscious of the strange, fantastic structure built around her, in modern parlance, uninvolved. The citizenship of Rome dissolved into the citizenship of the ancient world. Spain learned how to live on the treasures of the Americas. The Habsburgs extended their policy with their power. But England, which took as an axiom that American colonies could not be represented in Parliament and had to confess that even Ireland was not to be assimilated, underwent no organic change as the mistress of a world empire. So the continuation of her existence was unbroken when the loose connections which had linked her with distant continents and strange races fell away. Did you catch that? The genteel, the refined mother country remained unaltered, uninvolved. The judges remain unjudged. Almost like they had nothing at all to do with the more than 10 million African humans that were processed in British slave factories all along the western coast of Africa, endured the middle passage across the Atlantic, and landed in the colonies to live lives of abuse and oppression. No, England saw, but wasn't seen. And now, in 1960s, when the empire is crumbling, they can finally go back to the good old days, forgetting those pesky distant continents and strange races. This troubling fantasy is speaking directly to the ideas of class and gender presented by Addison and Steele in Mr. Spectator. Powell's nationalist rhetoric ignored the hundreds of non-white people that had been living in England since it was in some ways a colony of the Roman Empire. And those people continue there to that day. In that one speech, he so easily erased their entire lives and their history so that he could make sense of England as a genteel, uninvolved nation, watching the world do its thing, uninvolved and silent. So much has to disappear and so much has to be cut off to be able to remain blameless, unjudged, genteel and pure. One must cut off and forget huge swaths of history, hundreds of years of the transatlantic slave trade, and hundreds of black people living in England for centuries for Powell's idea of England to make any sense. One must cut off and sacrifice whole chunks of one's being and desires and personality in striving towards the unachievable demands of the rigid gender and class ideals that our society has created. And so much has to be unlearned for us not to fall for that anymore. Thank you so much for joining me today. I hope this has piqued your curiosity and that you'll join me for future episodes. References, sources, and other historical tidbits can be found at thegoldenquince.com. I want to explicitly call out and recommend the book Black and British by David Olusoga. 
It is a thorough examination of black history in Britain since the Roman Empire to the present day. I hope you'll join me again, dear listener, and until then, I remain affectionately yours. Mm-hmm.